everybody. How's it going? My name's Willie Romano Pugh, and thanks again for tuning in to The Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited. Hey there, everybody, and Willie. My name is Jakob, and yes, a podcast where we do a deep read into each and every episode of the HBO show, The Wire. All right, and... Thanks again to everybody for tuning in. Just as a quick note up front here, uh, we still have the support link up online at Anchor. So if you want to chip in a couple bucks to us, it's always really appreciated. Just go over to anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. And with that, let's get into season one, episode 10 of The Wire, The Cost. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if before we jump in, I mean, kind of unrelated, but I know a lot's been going on in the world. Um, And then right before we were about to start this, you shared some pretty sad news with me about the passing of Chadwick Boseman. So rest in peace to a phenomenal actor. Terrible loss. I mean, it seemed like he was only just really scratching the surface with how many great roles he had done in such a short amount of time. I feel like it was only only a matter of time before he was going to start winning all the awards. He was just that good. yeah, I really I really feel this one. He's he's a terrific actor and um he was great alongside uh Wire alumni Michael B Jordan uh, of course in Black Panther. Yes. So really sad terrible news. Um and we also uh, we also learned about um uh Justin Earl uh died earlier this week son of Steve Earl who of course the ama- he's an amazing actor who played Waylon uh on the wire so a lot of a lot of hard losses this week uh, not to mention like everything that's going on in Wisconsin um so yeah we just mm-hmm. want to send our best wishes yeah. out to everybody indeed it truly uh 2020 keeps on pushing so it's tough but Anyways, uh, well, we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, let's so. get into this uh, uh, this great episode directed by Brad Anderson. He's got quite a impressive resume. He also directed the movie The Machinist. Yeah. Oh, what? I knew. It. I was I was waiting. Every time now I see the uh, opening credits and the director, I'm like, oh, what's Willie got yeah, for pre- us this time? Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. I mean, he's, he's done a lot yeah. of other uh, TV work. I, I saw that he he did. Uh, I think a couple of trips episodes but yeah he's got a lot of horror cred like the machinist if anybody hasn't seen that movie great like early christian bale performance uh yeah Crazy he also did a performance s- like yeah loss. also did session nine which was about a abandoned mental institution so yeah great uh great director this you know great show attracts great talent behind the camera to say the least first storyline of this episode that relates uh, to Bubbles. He's hanging out at the the park near his sister's place. I'm not sure yet of where exactly it is, but you know, as I talked about, it's a little more. Yeah, like I mean, this is a different vibe, obviously, than where Bubbles usually hangs out, which is good. But as we see him sitting on the bench, there's still you know the temptation is just lurking in the in. You know, wherever there's a corner everywhere, like we hear about in in the show, The Corner. So um, even though he's still in Baltimore, you know, he's he's known in the neighborhood by passerbys. Um, And 
what's up with the kids though playing with the bubbles is that uh, symbolizing something you got a deep read into this into nope. this <laughs> okay. I, don't, yeah. I don't know i mean it could be that they are trying to do like some heavy-handed metaphor there but uh this is i mean just this work here in the beginning is really impressive for uh getting inside the mind of um this character and just like these little subtle things of him like taking notice of more small precious details and moments of life uh you know makes us hopeful that he could stay with this straight straight life and and kick the habit because he's like almost getting high off of just like watching the leaves rustling and hearing people's conversation like it's a interesting way that they put a perspective on this yeah truly interesting uh yeah camera work and just the the greenery maybe having a healing effect on him in the moment but even though we know the next relapse is potentially around the corner but um and then I don't know if you had no, I mean, it's something just, else. Were you about to just, say something or, or you were just no, catching your breath? Just the My cold bad. open is really great for uh, how simply and effectively it communicates uh, how Bubbles feels in this moment, like how he, he sees the possibility of him getting straight and all the happiness that would bring to him. But, you know, we're also really aware of his whole struggle. So just the economy in uh, the filmmaking style and storytelling, you know, without any real dialogue. I mean, like I know we hear some passersby talking, but there's not really like any, you know, exchanges or anything to advance the story. Like it's just uh, really powerful the way it uses the 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 cinematic medium in this instance. And then kind of carrying on this bubbles his journey throughout the episode a little bit later on he meets up with the aforementioned Waylon, who uh i guess they somehow we don't really know how they get in touch right but he has his he has his information so he i don't know he somehow yeah they meet up at the park where they have a pretty uh i mean it, he learned a lot about each of their characters right this is kind of an interesting moment because i was like wait what bubbles has a son i never I, I must have yeah, forgotten all, that, right? That's, it's that's kind of crazy. just like glossed over, and I'm not sure if it's mentioned ever again in the rest of the series, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, so yeah, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, why he uh, takes Rashad, right? Is that the guy, the young man he takes under his wing is like kind of being like a father figure, and then you know we know how that ends tragically. So why he takes it so. You know, have a so I mean, it's yeah, extremely tragic, but you know, he has a son that has been he's been deemed an unfit father for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, man, Stephen Earl is just such a great, such a great actor. It's like he's not acting, it really but, isn't. Yeah. yeah, he's such a like reassuring presence. And check out like the self aware, like the tragic self awareness with Bubs, where he's just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my wife, my wife left me, and my sister hates me, and I don't know my dad. Like, yeah, I know, like I know all this, like I know I'm a piece of shit. And he says it all like while still keeping a smile on his face. It's like, god damn, dude, like you have that much like self awareness and knowledge, and you're not like totally and I, I don't know like it's so shocking that he's not more depressed and and then uh you know as you said waylon really reassuring he's like well you're an unfit father 
but guess what? I have HIV and I, I gave my, he gave his wife or his old lady HIV, right? But he's glad that it didn't, like his child or daughter, I think, or he just says that, yeah, she didn't, she didn't get it. So, and then gives him his sage Waylon advice, right? Like, uh, getting clean is the easy part. <laughs> now comes life or yeah, living. That's a great quote there that we got from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of. Yeah, it's true. And uh, I think it's interesting how this whole kind of that whole mention kind of like foreshadows like uh, like Bubs is self, you know, his, his guilt later on in the show when he he's like ashamed that he hasn't caught HIV <laughs> when he gets tested after he gets clean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're setting up the HIV. Yeah, that, that whole storyline. But. Well, as we see, I mean, it's a great quote from Waylon, but we learn getting clean is actually not as, it's not really, is it that easy? I mean, is it, he makes it, but at the end of the episode, he's calling up Kima for reinforcement and he tells her it's been three days. And of course we're, you know, we're going to get to all that at the end of the episode, but that's kind of the last we part of Bubbles' uh, journey and throughout, you know, this episode 10, but it's not as, yeah, it's obviously given what happens, he's going to, you know, it's setting the stage for relapse essentially, but you know, all due to tragedy out of his it's hands. It's crazy how it's either like how perceptive Kima is like as a cop or just like how obvious Bubs's behavior is that like without even having to say anything to where Kima like understands that he's trying this whole sobriety thing out. Um, and it's like this scene along with the scene with her girlfriend like late, like later on in the episode kind of foreshadows what what's going to happen to Kima uh, at the end of the episode that Bubs is kind of like trying to be reliant on her and seeing her as a savior for, for helping him on his journey. Yeah. It's just, I mean, he, what he's asking her for though, I mean, aside from the obvious, you know, moral support and their rapport and when he's with her, he feels like he has a, you know, he had a purpose, but now that Johnny's back in the mix, his kind of, you know, his surveillance work is, uh, you know, his informant ventures kind of been subsided. So he's having to focus on himself. But I mean, what he's asking for is really pretty basic. Like, is there no Salvation Army or Waylon couldn't hook him up with like a, a re, like a bed somewhere? He's just asking for like clothes and sheets and a bed. And it's like, man, I mean, you know, she, I'm just wondering, like, are there no services that uh she uh, is that is that how far the disconnect is between a deu member and like some sort of uh outreach unit of the police department or that they're affiliated with i guess they don't i guess you know what you hear the cops like we're here to help but is that the wrong kind of uh help he's looking for from her yeah, i guess pretty tragic like the disconnect and the understanding of his situation there well he got pretty close with the Oh, or we'll, we'll never know. Right. As a, a wise man likes to say, anyhow, I don't know. Did we, did we miss anything or did I forget to add anything for the Bub's storyline? I think this we stuff? covered Bub's pretty well. I mean, we do see him. What does he say? I ain't up when, uh, somebody approaches him at nighttime. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They got that death. Was it death row or something? I don't, ah, fuck. I don't remember what the name of it is, but yeah, we see, we see his, uh, his um steadfastness kind of uh 
paying off a little bit uh, in that instance when he when he refuses to uh, take the bait there. So, it, you know, who knows if Kima hadn't gotten shot, if uh, Bubs could have survived this whole effort of sobriety a little bit longer than he does. But um, let's talk about uh, Omar and that whole that whole parlay situation. Avon's uh, the blowback from. <laughs> the last shootout yeah we get avon kind of uh conceding a little bit to stringer and saying like he offered good advice about the whole situation yeah, yeah. even Weebay's on board he's like oh i get it the whole strategy of luring omar out of his hole so to speak yeah and string uh wants to insulate avon further they're talking about the chase after the base basketball game avon's maybe not as up I mean, in that scene, it's like, oh, he knows he knows everything that the details trying to do to corner him or, you know, follow him. He's like, oh, it was just two cars. And then you're like, wait, wasn't it? Weren't there like four cars involved or was it really just two? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they dramatized it <laughs> way more than I remember. I, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're like at least three. It's irrelevant. They, nothing the point happened. is, is that it just shows you how stupid their pursuit of him was in the first place, that it didn't really like give any valuable information. And it's just made them more cautious and made the details investigation that much harder. Yeah. It's like, I mean, if they did follow me, I was just going to get a fade or whatever at the barbershop. So, yeah. So, I mean, Omar uh, gets in touch with... McNulty and Kima too about what happened or yeah they're they're uh it's almost like this is one of the things what you know even thinking back to the first time or two I watched it like but how do they not like arrest Omar right because he's basically admitting like oh I've been in like a shootout and and they're I mean I know they had joked like a f- episode or two ago or, yeah not last episode but when that whole thing came up with him coming downstairs to give his testimony and fabricate, you know, him witnessing Bird and they're questioning, like, are we still cops, you know, given this whole Omar situation? But I guess McNulty's like, yeah, this is what I do. So he's all down with like playing on the on the peripheries to, you know, if it's going to pay off big later, he'll just like yeah, turn a blind eye to Omar's obvious illegal activity, right. which, you know, not surprising. I mean, McNulty, yeah, he has that big picture uh, state of mind where he's just like, you know, I could look over these murders if it's just infighting within these like criminal organizations, uh, if it helps us bring the whole thing down. But, you know, it doesn't... <clears throat> make it we're we're not necessarily made aware in the short term of how like McNulty's fudging of the rules could have dire consequences but definitely by the end of the show uh we know that McNulty might be kind of like a narcissistic sociopath that has fucked everything up for the worse <laughs> hey an- ants become elephants right yeah exactly as stringers kind of mentioning or they uh, want to get in touch with Omar. So Prop Joe sets up the parlay, right? It's like, man, proposition to the max. How right shady here. is Proposition <laughs> Joe, too? Like setting up that meeting and then yeah. pretending he doesn't know Omar <laughs> and then threatens, <laughs> threatens him there uh, when they meet up. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, he like calls him names to try to, I guess, uh, can, you know, up the ante with the whole acting all brand new with Stringer like yeah let's let's insult him on his sexuality and call him a cocksucker and this and that and like yeah just openly brag about how he's uh 
you know, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, string, you're going to pay his half of the fee, right? To meet, to get this meet set up. <laughs> so it's like, man, he's just making money hand over fist. Uh, and yeah, and then threatens to kill Omar's whole family if he ever steals from him, which of course the irony, he literally just brought prop joe all of avon's stolen like <laughs> his product that he stole from, from stringer so much like double crossing lying going on here with stringer like trying to convince omar that he doesn't even know avon <laughs> like yeah he doesn't know anything about the murder and torture of his lover and yeah i mean omar's still yeah he's got a wire on too so he's they're all in the game right there it's just yeah it's messy but Stringer's too careful, obviously. In this instance. And this is like one of those early scenes where, where you're watching it the first time. Like, what? What is happening <laughs> right now? Jesus Christ. Like, this is this is crazy. Yeah. Like, there's so much, like, subtext that going on with, like, people lying and not saying what they really mean. Where we're, like, trying to, like, catch up with what people's real intentions are and all that stuff. So, but, you know, yeah, fuck the average this, viewer. Yeah, fuck the average yeah, man. Fuck you, Jakob, from three years ago. No, but uh, I don't know, man. We'll we'll see. Again, I'm still still working towards that uh, above average viewer title. But this is where, yeah. Also, Omar pulls his little ploy here to kind of feel out, you know, their true intentions, the Barksdales rather, and ask for money, right? To also like a fee to stay away from from their product, basically, uh, n- knowing that. Of course, you know, if they agree, um, you know, it's obviously the parlay is, is not, it's not to be honored and they're really just, you know, using it to try to lure him out, which we hear him bring up to McNulty right at the end of the episode as he's getting on a bus to Exactly. New York, right? And I did, there was a, a piece of trivia or a oh, trivium, yeah, yeah. if you will about what the well, a trivia I think yeah, that's the sing, that? the singular uh of trivia I think trivia is the plural of trivium um oh okay wait so that means you only got one one yeah for- there is a oh okay so um this is from the internet movie database uh when Omar leaves at the bus station and says goodbye to Big Nulty, he is asked about New York City he replies, there must be something happening. It's too big a town. A line lifted from the Steve Earle song, New York City. So some, some neat little cross-referencing there of one of the actors in the show having his lyrics utilized. Man, that's crazy. Good, good stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Basically, uh yeah, I don't know if I maybe jumped over the whole how pissed off Avon was for Omar even asking for for a fee, and uh, I don't know. He also says Sh- shit, but like he's like shit. So it's like, is that the first time we hear? It? Is that did Clay did Clay Davis really, uh, or is this just is it a term like more commonly used? And but he just says it the best. <laughs> oh, I, I mean. mean yeah, we all associate silly. that uh, pronunciation with uh, Clay Davis, right? We'll we'll be treated to that shortly, right? I don't know what what do you make of this? Like, it's really just one interaction that we see Jimmy have with uh, Judge Phelan, but I guess it's kind of a important little piece, right? Oh yeah, that's right. I mean, Judge Phelan has been such a staunch ally of the detail up until this point. But as soon as uh, McNulty and Rhonda learned that uh, 
his position, I guess, is is uh, in jeopardy or he's not uh, up for re-election on the mayor's ticket that like he's like having a temper tantrum about having to uh, give the affidavit affidavit for uh, more time on the wiretap. So just proof that uh, politics plays such a huge role in superseding people's intentions. Yeah, it's also interesting because Phelan comes across as such a confident judge uh, and, and it kind of takes McNulty by surprise. Like, wait, I thought Phelan has, I thought they have like 15 year terms in the city circuit court. Or, um, but but I guess, yeah, he had only taken over for someone. So I guess Phelan knew all along that in two years he was going to have to run again, but he's still just like, do, 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 I'm the judge now. Like, But I mean, it's like, why are you flexing on everyone? knowing that you potentially might get, I don't know, he's not getting primaried, right? Or he's just, he has to run again, but he's not, yeah, he's not on the ticket or like he said. So, but um, yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. The uh, prospect of having your uh, position or your power taken away makes you act contrary to uh, your true, your true beliefs or your intentions. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, I'm sure that, yeah, I mean, it's, Jimmy kind of realizes that, or based on the information from from Perlman, that it's it might be you know the company that uh, Phelan keeps being Jimmy that is uh, making him unpopular or maybe an, a problem in the eyes of whoever chooses you know the ticket. Exactly, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, man. Chaos, chaos. Makes a thorn in everybody's side. But hey, he got his month right. He's he's happy. Yeah. So then we get we get into uh, D'Angelo a little bit of D'Angelo's existential crisis. Um, you had written about uh, how he um, him and or Donette, Donette is asking for a lot more money and stuff that they're gonna need for the baby, and D'Angelo is basically just like in his own world, pulling toy trucks out of the refrigerator and putting a a cold juice up to his forehead trying to like get his mind around how he's gonna make up with Chardine um pretty intense stuff with him like coming to grips with like his whole position in this in this fucked up chess game um I did wanna I did wanna say (laughs) I did wanna say one little thing I noticed when he's outside of Orlando's waiting for Chardine and they have kind of an argument we see people in the foreground playing checkers I don't know if you you saw that like him trash talking checkers like earlier in the season and now like we see people uh, playing checkers while he's having an argument um, with Chardine about like he's like oh just give me five minutes of your time and she's totally over him at this point like think it's still in her mind she probably thinks he had something to do with uh, her friend's death um I don't have like any like concrete take or read on why they chose to uh, show people playing checkers in the foreground, but yeah, maybe it's just like something as like some stupid mistake uh, D'Angelo made that uh, is putting him in this situation was like a, a, a shitty checkers move instead of like a, you know, high level strategic chess move or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, he's in checker hell, right? He's, he's trying to play chess on a checkerboard, which is like the big no-no. So that's crazy, though. Yeah, thanks for pulling that out. But uh, 
That's a great insight. So, I mean, yeah, obviously it's going terribly and, you know, his love life and just beyond. And from here, I mean, we had seen uh, Chardine kind of, well, she'll eventually do some uh, surveillance of her own, right? When she's uh, she's getting more curious about what's going on up top in the in the secured room with Avon and String and like at doing some really bold, uh, you know, surveillance, if you will, where like seems really, uh, yeah, really, it's not smart what she's doing, trying to listen through a door and stuff. But yeah, basically out of the, out of all this, Lester finesses himself a date with Chardine basically, right? <laughs> <laughs> where he's like, he's like, you know, just doing his Lester thing at the diner or whatnot. Like, oh yeah. Oh, you're, you actually can't see at all when you, when you, uh, aren't wearing your glasses. Yeah. And they have a good laugh about it. It's almost as if like, she totally forgot that like just last week she was horrified at seeing a dead body. And now she's like laughing up with Lester at a dinner table while they're laughing and, you know, they're making jokes about her goofy looking glasses and how she can't wear them at work. Was she wearing them when they went to the medical examiners or maybe it's like oh like, she's like i couldn't really see my dead friend or colleague really that well anyways but it's still horrible but dollhouses are nice do, do, do. like man hey yeah that's crazy um yeah i don't know if you got it's like a very short glimpse into their budding relationship but yeah you know, i mean I don't, we, I don't know if there's anything else really. we see the kind of the uh, bizarre chemistry that's happening between them and it's nice i like it yeah uh-huh. <laughs> All right. i mean it could it could like the the way the the writers kind of like finesse this whole thing it could be kind of like a creepy you know slightly like weird maybe abusive relationship that like Lester is like turning his witness into his girlfriend, but like he's so like, and you know, the age difference, of course, is also a factor, but like Lester is like so charming and assured of himself. And you know, she's great too. And it's keeping an open mind about all this that like I, I think, I think like the audience can kind of get on board with their relationship. And it's almost kind of sad that like we don't see more of their. Uh, <laughs> their interactions you know i think after the first season they are seen or she's seen like once more in the second season and then like at the very end of the show we see them you know getting intimate with each other so could could have used more of their cute chemistry together hey maybe you know maybe uh we, you could sound off uh an ao despair's uh, inbox one of these days <laughs> <laughs> it's scary get the hell out of here you squib wanting more sardine and lester's fuck nuts whatever i mean uh <laughs> but uh yeah i mean lester's you know obviously doing his thing as well in this episode as far as uh you know, his work investigating the uh, stash house patterns, which they're up on the main, the main, yeah, stash house. So they've tracked it to a Mondo Mart that I can't seem to find. Maybe my half-ass Google Maps research. Oh, come on, know, man. You're supposed to, to be the, I need to turn you're it supposed up. to be the geo genius. <laughs> I mean, there is no Mondo Mart I'm aware of out on there. On Reisterstown. On Reister's, yeah, Reisterstown. I mean, that's brought up a lot. Uh, but, I mean, it's up in Pimlico. I was looking. There's even a uh, Gordon's International Cafe where they're doing surveillance. So, I mean, it's really, it's kind of a crapshoot for me each time I try to utilize a business, um, you know, 
that was potentially there 20 years ago as a reference point, you know, given now that we're in at least a second huge depression or recession. So it's like, you know, what's, I guess Gordon's didn't make it through 08 or whatever. And now definitely is not there. So I lost that. I guess I could have gone back because I didn't get the cross street or wherever. But I mean, in my research, which I feel like is generally pretty thorough. Thank you, Willie. Uh, I have proven often that the streets or reference points that are uh, given to the viewers isn't always the exact place, you know, where things play out. But, you know, it's up in Pimlico, basically, which, um, yeah, northwest Baltimore area. It's like just above Park Heights, which is a, yeah, it's a community up in, yeah, north, the northwestern portion where we'll hear reference again, like when they're going after, what's his name? Kentel Williamson or something in season two. It's like, an area with a lot of uh, like West Indian immigrants and tr- like culture. Um, also, Pimlico is brought up quite a bit in this season. It's like the stash house uh, heaven, apparently, right? Because even in like the opening episode, right, Fitzhugh's up on the Pimlico stash house, and now there's another Pimlico stash house, and that's where the real Cookie Savage had his Pimlico stash house. So you know, I guess we could see why it's like a little quieter area, more you know, bedroomy or like suburban looking in some areas. I mean, it's still pretty tough, like in, in a lot of areas and has some of the elements of urban decay, but not the house that we see, you know, them come to find as a stash house. Also Pimlico's, you know, the big racetrack, right? Where I think they have the, uh, the huge horse race. It's one of the triple crown events. Like it's the place where they have the Preakness. So yeah, it's like a racetrack community, but I don't know. Um, I'm sorry if I, I let everyone down on that whole Mondo Mart, but I had I, I had had to I had tried to find it even before we even this idea of doing this podcast was even yeah it wasn't it didn't exist because I had a buddy or I still have a buddy I haven't talked to him in a while but his nickname was Mondo for some reason. I'd always like want to be like, I want to get a Google map screenshot of this and, and send it to him. Like, ah, this is your, this is your market or whatever. It's stupid. But anyways, I, I don't know if you got anything to add about this, uh, this theme throughout, you know, it's pretty pivotal, pivotal, uh, piece of in, investigation, investigation, right. Of the investigation. Good historical significance he brought into the conversation there and how uh the <laughs> appearances can be a facade so thanks thanks for going deep on that um uh i don't know i mean did i i just brought up like you know how i failed basically at finding the mondo mart and there's horse races and like different cultures like west indian people live there which i, I should know about but it's also like a side of like frustration because when the wealthy or well-to-do people come up there each each year for the uh, you know elite horse race, they just like party and like park wherever. People try to make some extra money, but then they just like get drunk and pee in the neighborhood and stuff. Oh, like a bunch of drunk white white people. Yeah. You, you're you're a good guy, man. Thanks for bringing all that up. That's gold stuff. I was gonna bring up the whole thing where McNulty. Uh, brings in Wallace to the uh, to the interrogation room or we don't see you know the whole we see like McNulty like realizing how fucked up Wallace's situation that he was living right outside of where Brandon's body was like strewn out for everybody to see and 
his fucked up housing situation in the vacant. Um, but it is, it is really neat how they kind of just like skipped over the whole like part of him. Um, I get like apprehending him or like taking him in for questioning. And we, the only thing we really see is like McNulty talking to bunk while, while, while they look after him sleeping in the interrogation room. And I think it was a good choice on uh, behalf of the creators that they kind of like skipped over that whole part because we're already experiencing a lot of the pain that Wallace is experiencing, just kind of watching him unravel. Like, I bet you the whole like conversation that McNulty would have with Wallace would just be like almost too much to take. And just like seeing him sleep there in the interrogation room gives us all the information we need to know about his state of mind. I mean, he did. I mean, is it, is it implied that the two cops that he, you know, one of them being Bobby Brown or the cop that showed up in episode one and uh, another patrolman, right? He kind of bribes them with uh, Heineken and crab cakes to, to sit on the house. So is it like, oh, they just were like, hey, kid, come with us. Or they called McNulty back. Like, but I mean, they're just drinking on the job. Right. So it's kind of like, are, are they trustworthy to handle such a sensitive uh, situation? Oh, no, because it is McNulty. Right. He says when he found him, he was like basically halfway into a nod. Right. And they're like, oh, shit, he's using drugs. All right. Uh, well, let's. So, yeah, I mean, since we started talking on Wallace, right, like he uh, gets into a lot of, I mean, yeah, basically he, uh, he's saying, he, he's telling them all that they want to know, right? I mean, I'm sure he covered that or did I miss, did I miss part of that? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's ready to break, obviously, right? Like that's what they say. Like he doesn't even need to be threatened or, you know, like they feel bad for him as you, as you said, but eventually, uh yeah, I mean, they're talking about how kind of setting up the tragedy that's about to occur that, you know, no, no one will sign off from from the top to, you know, spend the money on housing or having someone pay, you know, pay someone overtime potentially to to ensure Wallace's safety until he can pretty much break open the whole case, even though he doesn't know really that he has to testify in front of everyone potentially. With, you right. Know. They can't pay for him to be in a hotel and they like house him up at his grandma's who he hasn't seen in like seven years and when he arrives there he's like confused by the sound of crickets and whatnot i think it's really telling that like wallace is like yeah stringer Weebay, like all these guys are are terrible and they're responsible for the murders but he refused he kind of refuses to throw d'angelo under the bus he's showing that they're both kind of in it for each other that like no matter what happens to the crew as a whole they both realize that they're like maybe like the only like good guys in in, in the whole organization and that 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 they probably stick up for each other if anything happened to either of them yeah truthfully but and the uh place Wallace is going to maybe you know now I'm feeling like a little insecure since since you called out my lack of uh, intel on Mondo Mart, like the eastern shore of Maryland where Grandma Wallace lives. I don't. I'm just yeah. Wallace's grandma lives. Um, you know how like you alluded to all the crickets. It's it's definitely more rural. Like pretty interesting area where it's across. I'm I believe that 
yeah, the span of water in between, uh, yeah, like the Chesapeake Bay that, that flows all the way up, kind of separating the eastern shore from, you know, the area of Maryland where Baltimore's located. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically to the, to the, um, east of the eastern shore is Delaware and then beyond that the ocean so it's like I guess I don't know technically part of the eastern shore because it it basically spans the entire state I don't know how Daniels would have gotten Wallace there if he would because there's a way you can go I looked on the map like uh, there's a bridge like highway 50 or something that he would have to drive south of Baltimore cross an actual bridge to get to the other side or drive all the way up to almost the borderline of Maryland and Pennsylvania and then drive all the way around so I don't really know the area or town that grandma's stand, like lives in on the eastern shore because it, it, it's such a long it's like yeah a huge swath of, of of land that just yeah touches touches the it's water it's a miracle so. uh wallace didn't throw up in uh daniels's car that whole time for such a long journey is it is it windy is it uh uh potentially yeah i mean it's pretty it could be i mean it's like it's not a it doesn't it's not like a huge highway i don't think i mean it just depends where you know in the shore she lived isn't isn't the eastern shore where is that is that where congress uh you know does their little vacation when everyone else is suffering <laughs> or no that's somewhere else <laughs> perhaps maybe i always hear they're like they go down to maryland to the shore or whatever but uh yeah i've been in maybe do you think it's a little swampy in certain parts on the <laughs> eastern shore <laughs> yeah it's like no avoid twitter hell and then i trick her into watching like hey you want to watch this documentary it's called the swamp great great documentary for all those out there who need to watch uh, some political stuff oh yeah we all need more of that right (laughs) and then uh, as i uh i don't know if this is maybe a sore subject since you know my uh, cryptic tweet or like not tweets, damn it. See, I'm Twitter's on my mind, but my cryptic, uh, messages I may send you when I, when I see thing or catch references. Cause you know, we're all things wire here at the gods will not save you. Uh, uh <laughs> when I realized that, uh, you know, one of the main stars of the documentary, Matt Gates, <laughs> uh, God damn it. But, uh, uh, yeah, pretty infuriating figure. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but anyways, his uh, apparently his hairstyle offended uh, someone who who drew a mean caricature of him or some posted something. Jim Carrey saying that he stole Con- like he's a he's a horrible person or whatever, and then he also stole Conway Twitty's hair. The artists that are music. Uh, you know, expert here, music of the wire expert Willie brought up was playing on a song from the jukebox in a previous episode where Bunk and McNulty are hanging out in a billy bar or whatever with the alternative crowd that's not necessarily to Bunk's taste. <laughs> that's right. When you sent that message to me, I looked at it for like a good like five minutes trying to decipher what it is you were talking about. And I was like, because I was like, when you were saying Conway Twitty, I was like, is this something to do with Kelly and Conway? Because she like recently resigned. Oh. Like she, she like Con- he's Conway's Twitter. <laughs> Matt, Matt Gates stole Kelly and Conway's hair stuff. Like I'm <laughs> was like a <laughs> Conway Twitty. Oh, that's it. I just I honestly only remember it because when you said that name, I mean, and your delivery is also often, you know, hilarious in my opinion. 
It just like I was just like, wow, that name's never gonna leave. Honestly, see, that's how we know we're meant uh, for a project like this because yeah, Con- Kellyanne Conway never crossed my mind really. So, <laughs> I mean, I think I uh, the whole stash house thing is just. I mean, it's pretty. You know, you got to give them credit, right? Where they uh, were able to pull off uh, learning the pattern and you know sending sending them out, but. Uh, I mean, just a few things, I guess. Like, is Sidner just perpetually in bomb bomb attire? <laughs> like, like he's just always, and he's like, he's mad at Carver for just being a slob and just eating straight junk food to the point where when he's walking, it looks like he's already trying to pass a kidney stone or something. And like, he's like, ah, oh, those cheese puffs. Like, uh, just been sodium overload for twelve hour shifts. Like seems terrible yeah so you know with lester's help and the wiretap they uh figure out the pattern as i said and can follow the guy through the neighborhood sitting follows him forever it's like i mean i guess that guy was just focused on his mission to get back but i guess you know he's a pretty believable bum at this point where he can just he could just walk around undetected blend in but uh yeah, I mean, eventually, Prez, right? He gets out of the office with the, you know, no gun, thankfully for the public. It's like, yeah, and we get a little uh, positive encouragement from Lester telling him he's got a gift for the paper trail. It's like we almost, almost feel happy for him before we remember that he blinded a kid in the second episode. So they're uh, doing their little covert uh, solid waste act. Pretty clever, but also pretty... Uh, just lazy on behalf of the stash house like they go through all this uh you know covert activity to remain undetected and they're like you know it'd be a good idea throwing a bunch of like baking soda and vial empty vials or whatever and uh yeah drug drug paraphernalia into our like unsecure garbage cans and it's also i mean any i guess like sidner is not too worried about like anybody like paying too much close attention to like his pattern of like going up and down the street but he was like outside of the stash house in the bum attire and then like the next day he's like dressed up as a garbage man like in front of the same house like is there a possibility anybody could have like caught him being in those two different outfits (laughs) and also they come back with all these detailed pictures right uh, of the surveillance that Sidner notices when he does his first pass through and is kind of just gawking at like you know I mean maybe more subtle but who who went back and then was it Sidner who then again went back or maybe they sent Carver to just go or did they drive that van like just right out in front of that on a pretty empty street uh to take photos of this house for 10 minutes I mean that seemed a little obvious right or no. So uh, let's, you want to talk about uh, old dummy Orlando uh, getting, getting busted? Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, kind of reinforcing what we've been saying uh, in the last couple of episodes, but anybody who had watched The Corner before watching this show probably be pretty impressed by just how much uh, stunt casting is going on because Orlando gets into this uh, car with the guy where they're talking about, you know, a drug transaction. And then it turns out the, the guy who's in the driver's seat is an undercover cop played by Nico Parham, who was, he was a dinky in the corner. That's, I knew, I'm like, this guy's familiar. So he's, he's one of, 
Yeah, he's one of the crew with like Sidner, RC, and, and DeAndre. Yeah, and so just another kind crazy. of like funhouse mirror instance there, just showing uh, the brilliance of not only of the performance, but uh, on behalf of the decisions of the casting director. So yeah, he's a great, he's a really good actor in this in this role. He's just like his ability to subtly ridicule Orlando and then also you know the rapport he has like with Kima we see after the bus well, it's pretty good stuff Troy yeah, Wiggins what was in, do, do you have an answer as to like what oh, was in the paper bag that made Orlando realize he was done for I don't know yeah it's always a I don't know I I was wondering you know I try to just watch this with like a fresh lens, you know, now that we're doing these deep reads and it's like a whole, we're looking at things in a whole new light. But yeah, even before I was like, oh yeah, I remember it's something, something funny, right? Something funny's going to happen here. I don't know. Is it his badge or is it just like, uh, you know, like uh, you're an idiot, like it's empty. I don't know. I mean, they're just, yeah, they're just, man, they're having, they must really like busting people like Orlando. He's just. It's like he's so out of touch. It's like even his car and the music he's listening to, oh, yeah. and how he dresses. Uh, Power of the just... Dollar by Cool in the Gang. Oh, okay, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I was going to be like, what, what kind of music do you think? And you're just like, Cool in the Gang. All right, let's move on. It's a fun song. I was listening to it last night as I was putting together a little research for this episode. Just don't turn it on in your fit if you're going to, you know, if like you get really desperate and then think like, oh, I have a friend who said they could hook me up with something from something New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you tell me, you're like, I'm going on a trip to uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. No, Willie, no, you're not. I know. Stop. But uh, yeah, I mean, anyways. Uh, but I do have a little. Well, first of all, yeah, it's this kind of actually he's cleared up a, a geo, uh, you know, question I had or something I, you know, being obviously someone who's not from the east coast mid-atlantic never been to maryland or baltimore i always wonder in my you know my fixation with local geography and and you know all of these little breakdowns i love to get into uh you know how phony or like hackish i must sound if i'm mispronouncing all these names you know without actually listening to how the actors or people who are from that area speak so because this is this is proves how much of you know how much how much work I have to do to really become a true you know Baltimore Maryland geographical uh, aficionado geography expert whatever you want to call it is that uh, the county just south you know like it's the county is Baltimore County which is kind of like pretty much you know encompasses the city to the north and also a little bit to the south southeast um, southwest portions as well. Um, but then there's Anne, and I always thought it was uh, Arundel County, but Troy Wiggins, who busts Orlando, was like, yeah, we bust him down in Arundel. And I, I had to listen to it a couple of times. I was like, what? Arun- Arundel? What? And I'm like, oh, it's, he's talking literally about Anne Ar- Arundel County, which I always thought was Arundel for some reason. So, hey, you learn something new. So, yeah, Orlando's down, messing around just south, south of Baltimore. Um, but I got a little background. I don't know if you had something to share before I go into a little uh, da da da. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, we got a little more to talk about with Orlando's tale here or his, you know, misfortune or whatever. He put himself in the situation, of course. So I'm not feeling bad, but 
Uh, so just thinking back to the uh, you know historical tie-ins or inspirations that you know w- were examined in depth by David Simon in his you know his journal journalistic endeavors covering Ed Burns and Harry Edgerton's investigation that of course we've talked about here numerous times but it's just always providing clues into you know the inspirations for this brilliant show um so basically little melvin had a uh an acquaintance that uh he kind of got back in touch with after he got released uh, little melvin from uh one of you know a few stints in jail from from the mid 60s um he was in and out until 79 um, and then, of course, after the investigation wrapped up, he went back in 1984. But he had, a, uh, I guess, an old acquaintance that came to him named Walter Robinson. And this guy, I mean, it's kind of a bizarre story, like thinking, you know, Mil- little Melvin's mythic, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, who he, who he was and you know, the figure he was in the Baltimore drug world and how, how throughout, you know, all his... Uh, how, you know, just by being so careful, obviously, and, and so and like his ingenious uh, precautions and, you know, using his abilities, like as a, like I said, a mass savant and all that to, to get ahead, why he would trust like someone like who I'm about to describe, who draws, I believe, some parallels to Orlando's tale here, where basically, uh, you know, he was trying to do this guy a favor, Walter Robinson, and I guess he gave him a kilo of cocaine because that's what you do to, you know, help out someone um, who just got released. Uh, and then I guess he lost, he lost it or claimed that someone ran off with it. Uh, so he borrowed some money to pay little Melvin back. Um, and I guess then little Melvin like wanted to help him out more. So he had been put in touch with one of his top lieutenants in Glenn Hawkins, uh, who's going to, yeah, I guess help Walter Robinson, you know, get, get on his feet as far as selling selling the product because he had limited contacts he, he just basically wasn't a very good drug dealer it seems <laughs> and then apparently walter Robinson's like i have a great idea uh you know i have an old Sally who is going to put me in touch with a distant relative who can sell us uh four kilos for uh, 25 grand each. And as you recall, you know, four, maybe significant number, cause there's four, four ounces that Orlando, uh, wants to purchase and they're all making fun of, you know, how little <laughs> an amount that was. But in this case, yeah, four kilos, that's quite a bit, but, uh, yeah, when, uh, Walter Robinson and Glenn Hawkins went down to, uh, where this, you know, contact or distant relative of his former cellmate was located that, that guy just happened to turn out to be a federal agent uh, who then busted Walter Robinson and ended, you know, he ended up back in jail. Uh, so that was literally just like months after he had gotten out. So, yeah, Walter Robinson, not the most intelligent guy and similar, like I said, parallel to Orlando. Uh yeah, his his ill-fated attempt here to branch out, but basically from from this arrest, uh, Walter Robinson felt that maybe, like, at first I think he thought he wanted to take the the years and just like, oh, I'm I made a huge mistake. But when he realized that Glenn Hawkins wasn't really gonna go to bat for him, or that Melvin wasn't maybe going to to like help him um, help him out, maybe also similar to the way we see Orlando get treated, and we'll talk about here with the pretty brilliant uh, scene with with Levy but um 
yeah, I guess he turned state or he did turn state's witness um, and started working with yeah, Ed Burns and the, the investigators going after little Melvin. And it turned out, I guess, that he uh, basically he just told them that little Melvin was using a pager, which I guess they, they didn't know about at that point in time. Um, and they had thought all along that this fifth pager that they were trying to track down as one of the clone beepers was Lamontian Farmer's girlfriend. But yeah, I guess, yeah, Walter Robinson, he then said, yeah, this is this is little Melvin's number or whatever. And then, um, yeah, from there, basically. They, you know, Ed Burns, Edgerton and the crew, the whatever FBI guys or whoever they're working with were able to sort of flip that new information about the fifth beeper into uh, more, you know, pinpoint precise surveillance. Pretty, pretty crazy how uh, he ends up in jail, Orlando. It's like his worst nightmare. Right. And uh, Marvin Browning, who we recognize, was that episode four? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, he gets busted in three in the pit raid. And then and then they pretty much give him his, you know, it's his turn in episode right. four. And we see him uh, recognize Orlando as he's brought in. And word gets back to the Barksdales that Orlando being stupid about stuff so more or less has to get taken out so to speak yeah and it's like him you know getting his like business his his title the title to orlando's seized retroactively right by levy and he's trying to play hardball with levy and he's it just it's like you're starting to realize oh this levy guy he's 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 no joke yeah he's just as much as part of the criminal enterprise as stringer and avon is <laughs> yeah and he i mean he obviously calls his bluff it's like offers a great line i thought it's like you wanted to be in the game right now now you're in it it's like uh-oh so orlando's got no choice really i mean obviously his choice was not to get involved but uh you know now he has to pretty much be turned state's witness turn snitch to leverage that in the hopes to uh yeah right get a reduced sentence and, and this so. kind of intersects with the whole uh ongoing storyline of daniels continuously trying to make the case to burrell that uh this investigation needs more time in order to broaden the scope and burrell keeps on laying the hammer down that he wants to buy bust so then it uh, kind of ties in when um, Troy Wiggins lets them know that uh, Orlando has been brought in. So they use him in an undercover sting operation, right? Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty crazy um, turn of events. It moves really quickly. I mean, really risky, risky operation that they're attempting to, to pull off, right? What do you think about the whole, you know, Kima going undercover and... Um, you know, risking, risking her life as we see for, you know, potential break in, you know, Orlando's testimony or his, yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, it's a gamble, it's a gamble, gamble. half-baked plan. They're all acting under pressure to bring something in. So yeah, I mean, it, it goes, it's, uh, goes the way you would expect it to when, they're forced to uh, do kind of shoddy police work because of pressure from the higher up. Yeah, so um, they identify Savino, right, as the target or who they should reach out to as far as, you know, like a more mid-tier uh, member of the uh, the Barksdales to, to serve as the, uh, the person to 
do this deal with, right? Um, interesting, Savino, and you know, I love my little name games and references. So, uh, Savino's name it's pulled, I believe, directly, and this is from Simon. Um, there was a actual drug dealer named uh, Savino Braxton who he served as a pretty high up like basically what Savino's doing right now seems to be what Savino Braxton would actually do in real life Baltimore uh, where he was like a wholesaler distributor to who worked with a really high level pretty much the the person who took over or you know probably was in the game already around the time little Melvin and those guys were getting wrapped up but early like in the I guess, uh, actually, you know what? That's not true. It, after Warren Bordley and all those guys in the late 80s got arrested, he pretty much, uh, this guy's name was Rudy Linwood Williams, and, or Linwood Rudy Williams, rather. And he pretty much was the next yeah, generation of West Side Kingpin and pretty much got caught in the ni- early 1990s. So Savino Braxton worked pretty closely with him. Uh, I believe that Linwood, yeah, Rudy... Williams was uh, pretty much a close uh, inspiration to Marlowe, who's like the next, you know, thing after Avon, of course. So, uh, but funny thing, I think Simon's love of also, you know, playing his little subtle games and, and the references that uh, he would name Savino in the show, Savino Bratton. Um, so like tying in you know, the street world to, I think, a reference, direct reference to Bill Bratton, the police chief of New York, who uh, kind of, uh, yeah, basically shaped Ed Norris's career, who we did see make another appearance in this episode, smug ass uh, Ed Norris. You know, he's my one of my favorites. <laughs> he's like, yeah, too drunk. One of your favorite targets, rather, who left to dunk on him. <laughs> Okay, uh, you know, what can you say? I know I made some pretty uh, harsh claims in one of these recent episodes and b- threw out some big numbers. Like I think I said, and I did. I, I do have receipts for this number, the amount of money he spent. I, I said it was like up in the hundred thousands, uh, mid hundred thousands that he spent. I forgot the exact number right now, but I think at the end of the investigation, though, it showed to be between 20 to 30,000 of that supplemental police fund that he wasted on his gallivanting and extramarital affairs and ridiculous gifts for his, you know, suitors, the women he was trying to woo. I just, you know, he's pretty greasy, but yeah, I just want to let everyone know out there, maybe it wasn't, maybe I missed like an edit on some Baltimore Sun article later on and I just went with that number, but hey, you know, pretty trustworthy, uh, well worth the, uh, the subscription, but hey, if you want to support, it's always it's always welcome. These things ain't free, uh, but obviously much better before the Chicago Tribune or whatever bought it out, right? But anyways, old Savino, yeah. So Simon, I think Bill Brandt was also out here, right, in L.A. as the police chief for a while. He came out here too. He's like, you know, broken windows, just arresting anybody in sight for. Uh, anything you know jaywalking to dropping a piece of gum on the ground right anyways uh hey what what's the uh uh well i'm gonna ask you of course about the music but hey there where do they pick up uh savino for this right at the cut rate did were you were you concerned for a moment you're like wait 
Yak has been uh, lying to us about the. It's really out there on uh, what is it? North and uh, shit. Where is it? It's North and Bradish or something. But uh, it's yeah. That's definitely cut rate. Uh, I don't know if I explained that too well, but I mean, I think I did a good job explaining our deep, you know, affinity for the Fulton liquors cut rate. Fulton cut rate liquors that inspired, you know, what we had talked about in our previous episode. If you haven't checked it out, but it's just a common word, right? For like a discount liquor store. I think it's more of a Midwest and East Coast thing. Um, but yeah, so that's that's in the area of which, you know, this whole scene unfolds uh, out on West North and um, out there by Coppin State. It's like just a little bit uh, West. It's like between Rosemont and. Uh, like east in the Easterwood area, kind of a little bit uh, west of uh, Penn North and all that good stuff. But what's the song that like Savino's really intent on uh, slapping while to to dis- distort any sort of potential communication? I mean, they're just always ahead of the You're game. You're talking right? about the H- Hater Players by Blackstar? Ah, I was about to say. I'm like, I know I, this sounds super familiar. Like some 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 good hip hop that Willie sent my way. Blackstar, right? Uh but yeah. He knows, he knows something's going on, but obviously didn't know that she was a cop because probably would have called it off, which uh, we'll see next episode. But I don't know, man, what, uh, what's going through your mind as you're watching? It's a pretty intense, it's like the most intense scene to date, right? I mean, depending like relative to, you know, this sort of incident. Yeah, it's really suspenseful and you know they uh one the i i think the david simon and ed burns were thinking of killing kima off in the first season but uh they decided to keep her on whether it was due to pressure from the network because she was a popular character or you know whatever um i'm definitely glad they kept her on but uh the way this scene unfolds is really masterfully done uh just with like little inklings here and there of like how things are going to go wrong. Like, um, you know, earlier in the episode, uh, when Kima is going out drinking with her friends, she tells the story of how she knew she wanted to be a cop, which kind of foreshadows like this whole shit that goes down with how the, the operation, um, gets blown apart. Um, and like you mentioned, Savino just insists on keeping the music up loud. And when they're, uh, parked at a place, uh, Kima notices the street signs are wrong. So it's also like a little, uh, clue there that, uh, the Barksdales are kind of like two steps ahead of them. Um, and also like a pretty cool like visual callback with the helicopter footage ending out the episode just reinforcing the whole idea of a surveillance state that um has been hammered in pretty effectively throughout the season i got a little you know how i got my little geo beefs here the whole like the coordinates or the location she's given out to everyone you know and they're panic state or you know she obviously has the cop sense going that something's not right she keeps saying between warwick uh which i probably incorrectly called warwick she says like with like a silent second w i guess warwick and longwood looking that up 
if, she, if I, I don't understand it, if correct me if you know I might be mistaken here. She keeps saying you know in the alleys between like off of Warwick and Longwood, and just looking at that on the map, that's at least one, two, three. It's like they're like almost four blocks apart on North Avenue. So I don't know how like she thinks maybe she's in between those two streets, but that's a pretty. I don't know if that added to the confusion, like trying to find her, because. Um, that's a pretty big area. It, it just, to me, I've always watched it like assuming it's either, you know, one of those two streets and they're right next to each other, you know, but that's not, that's not the case from what I discovered here in, uh, you know, doing my very thorough ge- uh, geographical, uh, investigations. So, uh, but Hey, I, uh, actually got another little, uh, cause I realized, yeah, my little historical time sometimes been getting a little light lately, but, uh, uh, there's a, another reference here to a, a pretty important and also tragic incident where there is an undercover cop named Marcellus Ward, also known as Marty Ward, who was doing a, uh, an investigation with the DEA where he, uh, he was basically yeah, doing a, a undercover buy at a, at a house in West Baltimore or whatever row house or some unit. Uh, I think the guy's name was LaSalle Simmons, who's a known heroin dealer. And he went in with a wire. But since he knew that the, the guy Simmons had a gun, and I mean, he was unarmed, but he just he wanted to stay and distract him, um, more or less, uh, until the agents arrived as far, you know, instead of maybe getting getting what he came to, you know, pin on the drug dealer and then potentially allow his partners or whoever to walk into to, you know, a guy, you know, waiting with a gun. But it, it just turned out that uh the uh yeah, the Simmons guy, he he just he killed Marty Ward and they actually similarly to what happened with Kima heard the uh like the gun cock and obviously that was a much more intimate uh, you know, or close range murder. So they were able to hear the gun cock and then uh, him get shot. And so kind of mirroring what we see with Kima and the, uh, you know, the tensions being ratcheted up by them, you know, Daniels or the people in charge of putting her in that situation, hearing her potential, you know, death on, on the wire that she's wearing. So, uh, but yeah, that was a really significant event not only because um after marty ward's death it um it changed the policy um you know what you see ineffective policy in the war on drugs in that particular moment in time 1984 uh where they discontinued the by bus that they were doing and relied so heavily upon to whereas after that uh undercover buys were really only utilized in the most high profile cases and it's something that, you know, was essentially discontinued on the street level. And apparently it was really such a rampant tactic utilized that I guess something like this maybe was inevitable or just, you know, they should have probably discontinued it. It might have saved Marty Ward's life. But basically that event was, uh, you know, such a, yeah, such a disaster. Essentially it, uh, it led to Ed Burns and, you know, their investigation being prematurely wrapped up, uh, similar, you know, to what we're going to see here in the next few episodes, um, where that happened, I believe on, uh, it's, it said it happened in, I believe my notes, unless they're incorrect, said it happened in December and then little Melvin and, 
and Chan and all those guys, uh, pretty much they went in for the arrest December 5th, 1984. So it happened like really quickly after Marty Ward was murdered. Um, that, you know, that pretty much shut down everything. So I guess that, you know, even though it was a tragedy in the eyes of, you know, the Baltimore Police Department, Ed Burns, they wish they had more time because due to that, uh, you know, pretty much having to move in, um, you know, maybe before they had all the information they needed or charges, Lamanchin farmers got off with just like seven years. So pretty crazy. There's always a... A web of interconnecting historical references uh, beneath uh, the con- the layer of content that we got in this show. So thanks for doing the. I tell you what. Tell <laughs> thanks you what. for doing the deep digging. <laughs> um, oh yeah, yeah, man. But yeah, I don't know if you got anything else. I got. I think maybe one more comment at least on. Sure. Yeah. Go, uh, there's Q. just a couple <clears throat> things that I wanted to bring up, but go ahead. Well, just I mean, I know it's a like really tragic event for everyone who's close to her that when they show up on the scene, but really only McNulty is trying to help her. It looks like, like everybody else is kicking trash cans or like crying, but no one is like putting pressure. I mean, they, they must all be, have some training. I know we see cops don't always want to help out people that are shot, but, um, it, like no one's applying pressure to her wounds or they just assume she's dead or something, but only McNulty's looks like he's trying to maybe do some sort of, rescue breathing something like that but uh yeah not the most uh proactive logical response yeah Yeah, i know it's like come on someone put a some gauze on her chest or something but hey i've never been in that situation i hope never to be so i can't say what you do um well there is a i just wanted to circle back around to this whole wallace situation uh yeah yeah. (laughs) we do get uh some neat foreshadowing going on there of him uh, being in the detail basement or office or whatever, and he's uh, he sees Clay Davis on the TV bragging about oh, yeah, his uh, yeah, yeah. how they're gonna get more money and they're gonna spend all outspend all their opponents. Just uh, some really great subtle foreshadowing of uh, the complex uh, storylines in season three of how all their money is is, is very dirty. So. We get a great little glimpse into that. And also, um, I can't tell if this was like a subtle dig at David Simon's wife or if it was a celebration of her, but uh, the scene in the bar uh, when Kima's girlfriend is like berating everybody for not being able to keep up with drinking with her. Uh, she says like, I went to Northwestern, basically saying like she can handle her shit because of like the school she went to which is uh, Laura Lippman's alma mater, who's uh, David Simon's wife. Also, we forgot to mention a couple episodes back, we do see Bunk reading uh, a book by Laura Lippman, which is kind of like a recurring thing in the show that characters are reading books uh, that are written by writers of the show. I know later on we see somebody reading a Dennis Lehane novel who is a prominent writer in the third season, so... Just wanted to to tie the tie that loose end up. We forgot to mention that I think back on episode eight. Uh, Baltimore Blues out there. If anyone, uh, shoot my my checkout, my uh, I might have expired. I don't know if I renewed it. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad. I mean, it, it was it was alright. I, I got into it a little bit, but one of Laura Lipman's uh, 
Baltimore-based uh, series, novel, series. Also, you might catch someone on a train, uh, potentially in the background of someone else's uh, photo reading George yeah. Pelicanos. <laughs> I yeah. was wondering when we were going to bring that up in here. Like, I first realized how much of a diehard... Uh, well, I get like I knew you were a diehard Wire fan, but uh, George Pelicanos, one of the prominent writers on the show, there was one time I saw an Instagram post of somebody like drinking liquor on a BART train. For those who don't live in the Bay Area, the BART train is basically like the subway of the Bay Area, the mass, you know, rapid Bay Area rapid transit. Uh, Somebody posted a video of themselves like drinking a bottle of liquor and who do I see in the background totally unaware of himself being filmed reading George Pelicanos yak. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Shouts out to my Bart my Bart days on oh, reading that Pelicanos got me through. It's actually funny because um I think that's who pretty much introduced or facilitated the you know relationship between David Simon and Pelicanos is Laura Lippman. So I think I remember reading that in all the pieces matter that uh, she was badgering Simon to read Sweet Forever, one of his novels. Uh, uh, he looked into it and then they met at a, uh, a funeral of a mutual friend. And then Pelicanos made some like dark, started using some dark humor or whatever, whatnot in the uh, funeral. Like, I guess they were dumping uh, large amounts of dirt with like a backhoe or something. And he asked Simon if that's like a traditional Jewish uh, custom or something, like sarcastically. And Simon being the uh, kind of uh, <laughs> sick, like sick minded guy he is at times, just thought it was funny. So I don't know. I could have misconstrued that. But I know for sure that, yeah, Laura Lippman played a big role in getting those two guys hooked up. I think it's also David Simon's like, nah, man, Dave's like Pelicanos, he's all DC and I'm kind of, I grew up around there in the suburbs of DC, but now I'm all Baltimore. Like I'm not going to like, see the rivalry is not, uh, it's not just, you know, whatever street culture, music, things like that. It's, uh, honestly, I don't, if you talk to people nowadays, it's like, no, it's, it's just, we're different. There isn't like a huge rivalry per se, but, um, yeah, interesting. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see him uh, make his appearance soon, right? George Pelicanos, unfortunately, for a lot of characters. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, master of the death scene. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We really appreciate it. Um, if you want to follow us, we're up on the social medias. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Definitely. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed our uh, latest content here. Of course, if you have any things that you'd like to hash out with us or, uh, you know, any questions, comments, concerns, don't hesitate to shoot us an email. We can be reached at the gods will not save you at gmail.com. Right. And uh, if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far, again, we have a support link up on Anchor if you want to chip in a few dollars. Uh, we're always very receptive to that and very appreciative. Uh, that website is anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. So please feel free. Yes. Yeah. Shout out to our two still, right? Uh, monthly uh, donors who are we're very appreciative of, especially considering the, the moment in time. We're all doing our best to uh, push through. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, also definitely wanted to give a shout out to our guy Mostart, who generously provided us with some original music for our uh, intro and outro. And of course, check him out on his website. It's mostart.com. He has a lot more uh, great work and his catalog. It's, it's definitely worth checking out. Great stuff there from Mostart. And also we want to give a thanks to Andre Tesnis, the graphic designer who did the incredible uh, podcast logo for us. So thank you to Andre Tesnis. Mm-hmm.